for me, my art is now organizing and holding space for people to be able to use their art towards social justice. That's Elizabeth Vega, a St. Louisan who works and lives in a place called Art House in North City. So she's there a lot. But recently, Vega spent five days straight at Art House, wearing an ankle monitor. I'm Nancy Fowler. And I'm Willis Ryder Arnold. And this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. Vega just completed a period of house arrest that stemmed from something that happened in May 2015. She and others were protesting in front of the home of Jennifer Joyce, who was then St. Louis's city prosecutor after Joyce decided not to indict a city police officer in the 2014 shooting death of Von Derrick Myers Jr. Vega says police chief Sam Dotson walked into her pepper sprayed hand that night, but a jury found her guilty of wiping pepper spray on Dotson's shirt, a charge of third degree assault on an officer. She was sentenced in late January to two years probation, as well as the house arrest. We visited Vega at Art House to talk about her confinement, but also to find out about the art making that happens there. Vega co-founded something called St. Louis Artivists. It's a group of activists who also make art or support art making. But it turns out much of her work involves children who wander in and dive into projects like creating kites to help them deal with feelings ranging from despair to joy. We'll hear from Vega in a few minutes about her work with kids. But first, she tells us about those five days of being tethered to her home. It's a busy place, so maybe you'll hear people come and go, and maybe a few chickens cackling in the backyard. You've just recently come out from under the house arrest. What was that like? Well, you know, they wanted to give me five days in jail. A shock. And, uh, you know, anytime I'm in jail, I use it as an opportunity to learn and organize. So... But I was glad that I got house arrest, but it kind of struck me how, like, it impacted me more psychologically because I had to wear the anklet and the shackle and all of that and couldn't go anywhere. And so, like, there would be times that I would just, like, walk, get ready to walk out the door and realize that, oh, wait, I'm under house arrest. And, um, you know, I mean, I felt like they were really trying to send a message. They were mad, they being, like, I think the police and the circuit attorney's office was a little frustrated because they offered me a suspended sentence like way early on and I didn't feel like I had done anything wrong and so insisted on a trial and insisted on a trial because I felt like we had to have that conversation in the courtroom and in a, in a public sphere because it wasn't going to happen any other way and so like the jury selection was kind of amazing because one of the questions that people asked were like do you trust the police and there were many many people who said no I don't and one of the people that st- struck out um, that stuck out is um, it was a white woman whose father was in law enforcement and her grandfather was in law enforcement but she had adopted an african-american son and so she stood up and she said that she feared for her son's life. And even though her father and grandfather were in law enforcement, she couldn't trust the police. And she, of course, she got recused from being on the jury, but that conversation was happening. Yeah. What are the terms of your probation? It's a two-year probationary it's period. It's a two-year. And, and also, how does that affect your work? Or how might that affect um, your work? It's not going to, I don't think. I talked to my probation officer, and he's like, don't get arrested. And I was like, I don't know. So that means you can't do things that might get you... Um, or be places where it might be. I feel like, as I told my probation officer, that 
you know, I'm going to continue to exercise my constitutional right. And whatever happens with that, come what may, you know, I don't want to violate my, it's like unsupervised probation. So, you know, I don't even have to like really report to him. Even with the trial, I was like, you know, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? I could spend a year in the workhouse. I was ready and prepared for that, no matter, you know, what happened. Because I feel like the stakes are too high not to. We have to, we, my, my humanity demands that I do something and use everything I have. And one of the things is, you know, I'm a good conceptual artist and I'm good at organizing people and gathering other ideas and making that happen. And so that's what I do. So I'm curious, you know, house arrest might have been a little different for you than for some other folks, given that your house is art house. Right. So what happens here and what historic art builds have taken place? The Muni action, the art was created here. That was where we went and sang um, on August 9th of this year. And um, we, Thirst for Freedom, cannot rest until it's won. And uh, so, yeah, there was, you know, um, white people, let's talk about racism. And then we also chose the Muni says Black Lives Matter. And part of the reason that we did that is because we wanted them to make a choice. Like either they could take it down or they could leave it up. We used their own logo and everything and their own text to do it. And I think one of the things that was amazing is, you know, Art House primarily is for the kids in the neighborhood to be able to come and kind of develop a political consciousness, but also to have a safe space and a place that feels like, as Krishan says, it kind of feels like a library, only more fun. And he's like, it's my community house, Miss Vega. And I was like, yes, that's what we want. So during the Muni art build, the kids got to come and see and bear witness to that. And they also um, got to hear, because the rehearsals for the song happened here. So this whole space was crammed with about 25 activists and we were all singing and then the next day during food share the kids were singing the song and one of the girls is now going to sing the song for Black History Month. So there's a kind of cross-pollination that's happening really kind of organically by just planning actions here. This house, we moved into this house October of 2015. And it kind of, like I said, it manifested as a result of the Ferguson Rebellion. Because being in the streets is just not sustainable. You just, you know, it's important and it has its role. And so I feel like collectively there was almost an existential crisis because we couldn't go back to our old lives. We really didn't know what the new lives, our new lives were gonna hold. The goal is, is that ultimately the house will be totally filled with people who are activists and who are doing like work in the community. There's an eight hour a month community service kind of requirement to live here because the rent is so low. Like everybody pays like 200 to 250 for their rent and that includes most everything because we also do a food share. So like we go and literally get food by the truckload from Whole Foods and we do this every Wednesday and every other Sunday and just bring it here, sort it, open up the doors and let people take whatever they need. It's a lot of milk and eggs and fresh produce. 
the kids know that whenever kids and adults, I have some people that are unhoused that come for food share, and they come and they do art and um, just have a place. We feed them coffee and soup and here's some art supplies, and they just they create. Sounds like a lot like the '60s revisited in the millennium. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. I mean, maybe they were onto something. I think people of color have lived in community you know, um, for a very long time, and we've sort of lost our way in how to do that, and it's kind of a requirement now. If you're gonna do activism work, but also need to eat and have shelter, I mean, the best way to do it is to live cooperatively, and with that brings other lessons that I think apply to the movement as well. I was gonna ask how it kind of then also gets poured back into art making and how you conceptualize of art as important to that activist process. Um, I think there's a quote by Viktor Frankl that says, um, despair is suffering without meaning. And I think that from the moment we were doing like art in Canfield, we realized that art has a way of... You're talking about Canfield Green, mm -hmm. where Michael Brown lived right. and was shot. Like very early on, um, in you know, we would go out there and take art supplies out there and just hold space. And to see how both children and adults use the art to sort of make sense of what they were feeling because it was all kind of jumbled up. So how did the experience since the arrest and waiting for trial and sentencing, how has that affected the art and the work that you do as an artist? It's just made me more committed. I mean, you know, it's kind of weird because I'm really not a visual artist. That's kind of like the thing that's really funny. Like I co-founded the artist, artist, but they don't let me do lettering. They I don't let you it. do lettering. <laughs> <laughs> from the very beginning, you know, really. Like keep I'm, her away from the writing right, implements. Or even like, you know, I'm a literary artist, I'm a storyteller, poetry, and I work a lot with kids around, you know, I'm primarily a community artist, so I work a lot with kids around story and voice and all of that. And so this just sort of manifested as a result of, you know, that very first day, the very first day of the Ferguson protest. And so when I saw Mike Brown's body laying in the street, something just happened. And I started calling people and I grabbed markers and paper and we ended up in, the in front of the Ferguson Police Department. And there was this kid, he was probably, he looked like he was about four, but he was probably around three. And um, he just looked shocked. And he said, um, they shot Mike Mike and I saw him dead in the street. And the only thing that felt right and that like what I could do is I was like, let's make a let's make a protest sign. And he immediately put his hands in the hands up position and we traced and we talked big words like justice and his sister was there and she she wrote it out and I spelled out justice for her and I remember she made it with a backwards J. And then, you know, it became clear that there were young kids who had bore witness to this. And, you know, kids always kind of get lost in the shuffle. And it's, I'm, I'm also getting my master's in counseling. So we went to Canfield and started holding space with the art and the things that the kids said. You know, um, there was one little girl, we were doing um, a weaving with a hula hoop and some thread and people could write whatever they wanted on it. And she, 
was talking about her uncle who had died before Mike Brown. And she's like, but you know, we don't talk about it because it makes my mother sad. And I was like, well, you can talk about it here. And she wove and she told stories. And she wrote her uncle's name on another ribbon and she told more stories. So in that instance, you know, art is giving her voice and a way to process grief and loss. And all of that had happened long before Mike Brown. You know, the kids in our neighborhood that where I live here, we have two of them that have lost parents this year, one of them whose parents was murdered in August. The art helps them kind of find voice, you know, and I think the way that it's changed is that it solidified my commitment that these systems are broken, they're not serving anybody, not even the people who are working within them because their humanity is also being taken. Um, but the people who are being most impacted are the kids. And it's like, how do we instill in them the creativity and imagination so they can re-envision a new world, you know? Because that's what they're going to need, and they're not getting it in the schools. So how do you actually do that? We just hold space. Like, the kids know that, see that whole messy corner over there? There's all kinds of toys and art supplies, and they don't have to ask. They can come in, and they're there, and they're ready for them. And we have all sorts of supplies. I think one of my favorite memories that I had with the kids was like probably, it was probably about a year ago. I pulled up from work, because I work at Camp Wyman, and um, I had like leftover food because I cater. I was doing catering that weekend, and we had like leftover food, so we had like fruit kebabs. And the kids surrounded my car, and they were like, "Can we come in? Can we make art? Can we make art?" And I got to the door, and Krishan was like, looks at Jeremiah, and was like, "Jeremiah, you need to tell her." And I was like, "Tell her what?" And he was like, "You know, my mommy died the day before my birthday." And I was like, when was your birthday? And he was like, February 5th, and she died February 4th. And so we came in here and we ate fruit kebabs, and then I looked and I noticed that we had all the supplies for making kites. And in Guatemala, in Dia de los Muertos, they make these beautiful kites on Dia de los Muertos in memory of their dead. So even though it was like February, I told Jeremiah that story, and we Googled how to make kites, and I read off the list of supplies, and Krishan was like, we got all of that! And I was like, yeah, when you live in community, that often happens. And so as you know, Jeremiah was making his kite, he was saying that it was ugly, and he started to put memories and stuff of you know him and his mom bowling and everything. And when we were flying it outside, he was like, my mommy's making my kite fly the highest. My mommy's making my kite fly the highest. And I was like, that is a, that is a moment that he'll never forget. People don't want to talk to kids about losing their parents. It's uncomfortable, it makes us feel helpless. But art is a pathway to be able to like help them find what they need within themselves. And it just gives that shape and form. Does this happen in any kind of organized way? Like are there office hours or is it just I mean, any time anybody wants to we're, go? We're working on it to try to have more structured hours because we're, we also live here. So, you know, trying to put in specific programming, like I'm doing my field experience for my counseling here, so I'm going to be doing an art-based emotionally literacy course for the kids. We're just going to take different emotions and talk about, because I think oftentimes 
We don't talk about what is joy, what is love, what is anger, how do you wield it, you know, what is sadness. So trying to trying to get them to have an emotional vocabulary, which I think is really important. We're gonna try and get some more artists to come here and and do workshops. It sounds like you're putting a lot of energy out into helping other people make art. I'm curious where you draw your inspiration from. What art do you use to kind of fuel your commitment to this intersection of art and activism? It's been strange because I do some writing and I do some poetry. Lately, quite honestly, the most that I've been able to do is color in the coloring book. <laughs> but uh, it's organizing. I get a lot to me, for me, my art is now organizing and holding space for people to be able to use their art towards social justice. You know, like I think about those shields, I don't know if you saw them on Facebook, the dapple shields that we did. Tell us about them a little bit if you would describe um, them. Well, they were beautiful, beautiful shields that were actually born out of the Ferguson Rebellion. Like we, right before the non-indictment, were really terrified because people were getting pepper sprayed and getting hit with batons and having rubber bullets shot at them. And so we decided that we were gonna make shields. And then like, you know, a year and some later, I'm at a conference and I met some people from Standing Rock and they had the same sort of shocked, exhausted look. I recognized it from when we finally like traveled a little bit and got out of the Ferguson Rebellion bubble. And um, we started talking, and they said, we, we mentioned the shields, and they're like, we need shields. And they wanted shields that had mirrors on them so that the police could see what they look like. And so we just had an art build and started creating these shields, and then people wanted to sign them. So then there was all these signatures on the interior that was closest to the water protector of these signatures of people who were like, we're standing with you, and then these beautiful art shields on the front. Some had mirrors on them, some were painted, and they used them in, in, in Standing Rock. So. You know, one thing I didn't ask you earlier, you, you at one point in your career were a, a crime reporter. Uh -huh. How do you think about that when you've had this experience personally with the criminal justice system, and also how does that figure into your art? Well, it's sort of interesting because um, I used to say as a reporter that I would never want the crime beat. But then I decided that I wanted it because I wanted to really infuse some humanity in it. And so when I was as a crime reporter, I would go to crime victims' houses, and I would sit with families, and I would talk to them, and I would hear their stories. And I would hear about, you know, somebody that may have been painted as a criminal, but who also had, like, other facets of their life that they really you know, we're all, we're beautiful. Looking at it from all angles, I think as an activist, it feels like that's where I'm supposed to be, you know, because I feel like even as a journalist, like there was that activist sort of bend, you know, trying to, to give voice to folks who often got lost in the system. Is the activism or the art, I don't want to say more important because they exist together, but does one ever overshadow the other or negatively influence the other? Does the the activism ever sort of maybe even turn some people away from the art? It's weird because I feel like I, the art that I do is mostly collaborations with folks 
and is mostly more about the process of art rather than the final product. I'm not trying to sell or market my art. I'm not trying to be, art is how I process and art is how I help other people process. And to me, it's if people don't like it, they don't like it. It doesn't, you know, I hope that the art that we do, particularly with the artivists, that it gives people an entry point to talk about the issues. And that's one of the things that I appreciate. A mother said that she always appreciated the work that the artivists do because she could point to something and use that as a way to explain to her child what was going on. And I think I work a lot with kids. They're my primary focus. And so that's where it comes from. So it's like, well, I don't really care what other <laughs> impacts it, you know. That was activist and artist Elizabeth Vega talking about her recent sentencing for a pepper spray incident with police chief Sam Dotson and about her work at Art House. This is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast, produced by Stephanie Lecce, Nancy Fowler, and Willis Ryder-Arnold, with help from our editor, David Casares. The music you heard from is made by local producer Trifecta. You can find Cut and Paste at stlpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis Public Radio's podcast series, Cut and Paste, is made possible by space, architects, designers, and builders, creating St. Louis's favorite spaces. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.